It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog Talk Radio. Well, Karen Harper Royal and Sandra Green Thomas will share their Georgetown 272 discovery journey with us tonight. Karen Harper Royal is the executive director of the Georgetown University 272 Descendants Association. Sandra Green Thomas has a wealth of family information that has been passed down to her by family members and has been with the organizing group of the GU 272 Descendants Association since its beginning. She is also the president of the GU 272 Descendants Association. So let me give a warm welcome to Karen Harper Royal and Sandra Green Thomas to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Karen and Sandra. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Bernice. Yes. Well, Karen, why don't you give us just an overview of the Georgetown uh, slave sale, and then we can go into discussing more about your family ties to this project. Sure. Um, In 1838, the Jesuit priests of Georgetown University sold 272 enslaved men, women, and children to two men in Louisiana. They were uh, former Governor Henry Johnson 
and uh, Dr. Jesse Beatty. And uh, many of the enslaved people ended up in Iberville Parish, in a little town called Maringouin, also in Ascension Parish, which is near, uh, near Donaldsonville, in a town called Smoke Bend, and also in Terrebonne Parish in Homa, Louisiana. Um, as time went on, uh, some of the enslaved people migrated to uh, Lafouche Parish and on over into New Orleans, and I would imagine all over the state, but a large group remained in Maringouin, Louisiana. Okay, and so why don't you, now that you've told us this information, how did you learn of any connection that your family may have had to this sale? Sure. In December of 2015, I began to do uh, genealogy uh, for our family and trace our family tree, and I did my side as well as my husband's side. So I knew my husband's family tree, and I still know it better than he knows it. And when in May I saw the article from the New York Times, and as soon as I saw the name Hawkins and the town Maringouin, Louisiana, I knew that had to be my uh, our family because my father-in-law always talks about his time in Maringouin, Louisiana. He grew up in Maringouin. Uh, he and all of his siblings, and it wasn't until the 1940s that they moved to uh, New Orleans. And I knew that his mother's name was Millie Hawkins. So I immediately uh, contacted uh, Judy Riffle, uh, the genealogist who's been working with the Georgetown Memory Project with Richard Cellini, and I said, hey, look, I believe this is our family. Uh, and I gave her the port of my family tree that included uh, two generations of the Hawkins family. And then Judy sent me back a pedigree tree that included uh, two additional generations, which led right back to uh, Patrick and Letty Hawkins. But I later found out that Patrick's father was Isaac Hawkins. And Georgetown has agreed to name one of the buildings on their campus that was formerly named for one of the priests that sold our ancestors, that uh, one of those buildings will be named for our ancestor, Isaac Hawkins. And so it was oh, really that, uh, that's wonderful. So that went further back when I had just gotten into genealogy. Okay, so you're, so at that time, though, you knew your family were the Hawkins. But did you know or had you seen anything that said Maryland as part of their uh, where they were born? No. No, I didn't because the two generations that I had were the ones who were born in Louisiana. So I had no idea. And the other surprise was that um, one of those Hawkins descendants married – a butler descendant who was also a part of that sale. So Nate and Bibby Butler, uh, and uh, and Nate and Bibby Butler are listed at the top of the manifest of the ship, the Catherine Jackson, that brought them here. Their daughter married the son of Patrick Hawkins. And so our family didn't know that they had butler in it at all except for in the, in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, one of the um, family members 
uh, one of our royal family members married a butler, and that butler actually traces all the way back to those uh, Mason Bibby Butler as well. So it's been an amazing discovery of how the families are all connected. We later found through DNA that many of the families, uh, it goes way beyond the Hawkinses. Uh, uh, my husband's DNA connects up with seven of the tested uh, uh, current descendants from the um, 1838 sale. So now we have you. You know who your family members are, and you have connected with with descendants. But Sandra, tell us about your family story. Well. Um... Last year, I believe it was in April, I was reading the Sunday New York Times, like I always do. And on the front page, I saw a picture of Immaculate Heart of Mary Cemetery in Maryland. It immediately caught my eye because I knew that that church had been founded by my great-grandfather, William Harris, and other members of my family. And many members of my family are buried in that cemetery. And so I was like, wow, what's up with Maryland, you know? And as I read the article, I began to wonder if my family might be descended from some of the enslaved that had been sold in 1838 for the benefit of Georgetown. I went online to the Georgetown Slavery Archive, and I looked at the transcribed documents relating to the sale. And in the inventory of the enslaved to be sold, I saw my great-great-grandfather, Sam, and my great-great-grandmother, Betsy, Betsy Harris, listed there as husband and wife. Then I examined the transcribed manifest of the Catherine, Catherine Jackson. I don't know but that, if you know that, but that's the ship that carried them to Louisiana. And once again, they were listed as husband and wife, but this time with their four children. Now, I, I knew this could not have been a coincidence. So I sent an email to Adam Rothman, who heads the Georgetown Slavery Archive research team, with an abbreviated family tree. And he, he e- emailed me back within a half an hour telling me, yes, you are a descendant and asking to arrange a phone call for the next day. Well, the next day we spoke, and he was amazed at the details that I knew about my family. But I was even more amazed, you know, because I don't recall with all the stories I heard from my family, ever anyone ever mentioning any place other than Maryland, Louisiana. There was never any mention about us being from Maryland. Mm-hmm. So um, it was it was it was a shock. It was a shock to me. I knew that. I knew I know a lot about my family, you know, and um, it was a shock to me to find out that we had that particular connection. So now that you both of you have that connection, I know that I, when I spoke to you, Karen, you said your life has 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 changed. It's it's not the same now that you have that information. So, Karen, tell us. I mean, what impact has that knowledge had on you? And your family. Well, I think the biggest impact has been um, coming together with new family members. Uh, Back in August, early August, we um, had a gathering of some of the descendants here in New Orleans. Sandra was a part of that. And uh, just realizing all the people that we're connected to, some of them I've known for 40 years. Another one lives right around the corner from my house now to find out that he's a relative. And and it's been really um, a, a wonderful experience uh, coming together with uh, other descendants. And we have been meeting since August. 
and putting together the GU-272 Descendants Association. And uh, we're looking forward to just meeting even more of our uh, newfound family members. But it's now something that I, I uh, it's a daily part of my life. I feel like I'm talking to descendants almost every day. And with the work of putting together the association and, and, and soon a, a foundation, uh, it has it's almost totally consumed my life. I, I do work, and uh, but um, it, it's been a joy. It really has been a joy sharing with other family members um, their new, uh, you know, sharing, letting them know that they have new family members that they didn't know existed. And um, I'm really happy to have found this. I have kind of put my side of uh, on my um, maternal side that I initially started doing that research has kind of been put aside because this is uh, so much more fruitful because when you can go back beyond the Civil War and African-American genealogy, it really is a treasure, and it just makes you want to continue to do even more research. So I spend a lot more time doing research now as well. Yes, and you're right. It certainly is a, tre- a treasure because you know you know where they came from. You know what ship they put them on and where they arrived and where they lived in Louisiana. But, Sandra, tell us what impact has this knowledge had on you? I think Sandra's call has been dropped, so I'm going to try to reach her back. But in the meantime... Why don't you tell us more about some of the descendants that you are uh, connecting with? Absolutely. I'll tell you uh, one of the uh, most surprising um, connections was uh, one of the descendants who was one of the vice presidents of the GU-272 Foundation, Sherilyn Branch. Well, Sherilyn was my middle school PE teacher. And... Hi, I don't I don't know what happened. The call dropped. <laughs> yes, that's okay. Yes. Okay, and she was your say that again about your school teacher. Yes, uh, one of the, uh, one of the descendants, Carolyn Branch, was uh, my middle school PE teacher, and then our lives came together again when she was the principal, and I worked uh, with parents of children with disabilities, and I would go to the different schools to help the parents. Uh, uh, get uh, services for their children. Uh, Sherilyn was one of the principals I had a really, really good relationship with. So we have, we basically have had a 40-year relationship now to find out that she is a cousin. Um, that's been an amazing discovery. I guess so. And Sandra, what impact has this had on, on you since your uh, discovery? of the connection with the Georgetown slave cell? You know, Bernice, I I come from a very large, close-knit and very Catholic family, and I'm referring to my father's family, the Green family. And we had a strong tradition, spending holidays together, you know, and the older members of my family, they always shared stories about their upbringing, their experiences, and family members who passed on, you know. In particular, you know, I had two aunts, Mary Blair and Old Dean Jupiter, my dad's sister. They were 
forthcoming with information. Like I was telling, sharing with uh, Karen the other day, you know, she's asking me about doing genealogy work, and I didn't even realize I was doing genealogy work at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it just began with my search to simply try to confirm the, and add to the stories I've been told, you know. I was fortunate in that they provided me with names, uh, many names of my ancestors, also my great-grandfather, who, had, who was not in the sale. His parents were in the sale, but he was enslaved here in Louisiana, you know, he had some accomplishments, um, which aided me in finding him in the record. He was a Reconstruction-era politician. You know, that enabled me to go to the local paper, for that the archives of the local paper during that era, and find him. He amassed property, and thanks to the Mormons, I was able to go to the public library and view his, view his succession. And he was also a devout Catholic. And as a result of that, I was able to utilize the Red Books for the Archdiocese of Baton Rouge. They, I don't know if you yes. know, but they record the baptisms, marriages, and deaths of Catholics. There are also some histories on Iberville Parish that mention him and his contributions to the church. So, you know, I always, you know, I knew about them. I knew that they had been enslaved, you know, but, you know, this adds, you know, such a bigger dimension to it, you know, you know, as, you know, I look through the archives and the information that Georgetown and Judy Ripple has provided, you know, I see them moving through time, you know, via various bills of sale, successions, advertisements, you know, or their labor contracts that they did with the Freeman's Bureau, you know. But, you know, I don't see them as chattel, which is how they've, they've been represented in these documents, but as flesh and blood human beings, my flesh and blood, you know. They're having children, creating, sustaining families and communities, you know? Yeah. But also, yes. you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of unanswered questions for me. A lot of unanswered questions, you know. It gave for me example, an extra component. What are gave some me of your unanswered questions? Well, I have my my great great grandfather, Sam Harris, for example. You know, I trace him well, he's been traced all through the documents various transactions that, you know, take place as his ownership passes from hand to hand. But then suddenly in the early 1860s, he drops from the record. Now, this is the time of the Civil War, and Sam was a blacksmith. You know, when they advertised him for sale, they always said, you know, Sam, Black Harris, blacksmith. You know, and what did blacksmiths do? They shoed horses, they repaired wagons, they crafted tools. Now, I'm wondering, was he pressed into service for the war? And if so, for which side? Did he die? If so, under what circumstances? You know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and and I see, you know, it's, it's just been interesting looking at the documents, and I see that my, my great-grandmother's family come on to the record. All of a sudden, they're all at the same plantation together, Charity, and her family's the Pendletons, you know? And at Emancipation, she's a young girl, but she will go on to marry William Harris, you know. But her father, in all the transactions that they are in, he's described as ruptured. And even in the subsequent labor contracts, he's ruptured. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, I learned it's a term for enslaved, you know, an enslaved person who has suffered some sort of internal injury, like a, a, a bad and persistent hernia, you know. Mm-hmm. So yes. these are people that live through really – difficult times where in many instances their destinies were, you know, they had no say in them, you know, 
And I and I think yes. about that. It makes me think about it. It's impacted my life, you know, tremendously. And I have had some wonderful people. It's been a positive thing, too. I've had some wonderful people that have come into my life. And I've formed some bonds, I think, that I will have for the rest of my life. You know, but um, it's something that, it makes it makes you think. It makes you think about about this country and the people in it. But it also lets me know, especially with the work that they're continuing to do at Georgetown and they're tracing the families further and further back, that this country belongs to me. My people sacrificed and died and gave every to this everything to this country even before it was a country. So it makes me. Uh, prouder in my belief of my own citizenship in this country and my own birthright in this country. Yes, yes, you stand on the shoulders of your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, I've read some of the the documents, and one, I, I think there's a, a, some of the documents are just so hurtful because you hear about people were running away and that they put children, uh, they separated children. And so how did you feel when you started reading some of the information of what happened at the point of the sale when they were taking them to the ship? Well, I'll tell you, one of the stories that really struck me and has stuck with me is the story of Nate Butler, Jr., uh, that would uh, be one of my, I guess, husband's uh, maybe three times or four times great uncle. Nate Butler Jr. was warned by uh, some of the older Jesuit priests who did not want this sale to happen, and he was warned to hide in the woods until after they took them. And he did hide away in the woods. Um, it, it was. It makes me wonder what made him go back to be an enslaved because he could have ran away, but he didn't. So I'm always intrigued by what made him go back and what kind of person, how the strength uh, it must have taken to choose to go back and be enslaved by the Jesuits. But I later found out that Nace Butler Jr. is buried at St. Inigo's in uh, St. Ignatius Cemetery And I'm told, I haven't been there, but I'm told that there are 15 people buried there, 14 are Jesuit priests, and the 15th is Nace Butler, Jr. And now, in current times, we have come into contact with descendants of Nace Butler, Jr. I've talked to them on the telephone. So it's really been an emotional roller coaster uh, because you know uh, the heartache and how hard it must have been to live as an enslaved person, and, you know, in, it used to be that I did not see our ancestors as uh, individuals with uh, stories around each one of them, but now yes. with this, you can see the, the life stories around each of these ancestors. They're not just one block, you know, of, of the, the slaves. These were people. That's why I now say enslaved people. Um, and, and they were amazing people uh, because think about the kind of man he must have been to. Uh, he, he was buried in that cemetery after freedom came. He died in 1888. He was born in 1818. The sale happened in 1838. 
So after this sale, he went on to live another 50 years very closely tied to his enslavers. What was that life like? I, I, I wonder. And that's a story to tell. I mean, one of yes, the things that both of you as descendants, you have individual stories to tell about your families and what has happened to your families. But I have a question for you. Have you found any descendants in Maryland that returned or that never left? Absolutely. One of the um, board members of our GU-272 association has uh, Melissa. She, her family still is in Maryland, and Melissa was with us when we were in Georgetown for the announcement from uh, Dr. DeJoya about the recommendations from their working group committee. Uh, Melissa's family also comes from one of the enslaved people who hid out in the woods, and they remain in Maryland. And when I first met Melissa on September 1st, I did not know that she too was a relative. But now because of the DNA testing, we know that she too is a relative. So her family never came to Louisiana. And we have been connected to her and other descendants. There are several other descendants that I talk to on a regular basis whose whose families stayed in Maryland. Well, we have a comment, two comments coming out of the chat room. One comment is, this is an amazing history. And another comment is, I'm trembling thinking about it. Chills. Now, the question that's coming out right now is, what are the best ways for others interested in determining whether their ancestors were part of this? Are similar cells? I mean, just how would they go about determining whether they are a part of this? There's several you know, ways. I, go ahead, Sandra. Sandra. No, no, no. I was just going to. I was just going to um to 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 say that in researching this, the thing that that, that really never I never I never thought of doing, but is an obvious thing to do because basically I I had approached it, my family's history, from basically our history. But the best way to do it is to trace it through the enslavers. That's where you're going to find, that's where you're going to find the information and the details that go back. You're going to have to look at bills of sale, advertisements, ship manifests, things like that. DNA can can help you. DNA can help you connect to this, to what we're doing, because we have such a diverse group of descendants from the original 272, and they've been generous enough to provide DNA samples, you know. So to connect to us, you could start with the DNA and work from there. But other people, the basic way to do it is to trace your enslavers, their their diaries, bills of sale, advertisements, as I said, um, ship manifests, things like that. And also, right, talk to the old, talk to the old people in your family. Talk to your elders. You know, you know, even something that they may say that might seem quite inconsequential might hold the key to you. You know, finding out about your ancestors. 
Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and continue this discussion. Just a quick break. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Karen Harper Royal and Sandra Green Thomas discussing the Georgetown 272 Discovery Journal. Now, I want you all to take us to another place. You just, Sandra, kind of gave folks an overview of how can you determine if you're a part of this project. And you mentioned various strategies. But I want to know, have you found people, you said Maryland, yes, you did identify one person, but did the sale of slaves from Georgetown go to other places other than Louisiana? Um, Back in the early 1820s, a group of the Jesuit priests left Maryland and moved over to Missouri, the Florissant area, um, right near Ferguson in St. Louis, and they started a school there. And then a few years later, some of the priests from Missouri came down to St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, in a a town called Grand Couteau, and they started St. Charles College there. And they brought with them uh, uh, four to six of the um, enslaved people that they had brought with them from Maryland, they brought them to St. Landry Parish. And the DNA is now beginning to show us that some of those that left Maryland and went to Missouri and then later came to Grand Couteau in St. Landry Parish are DNA related to some of the um, uh, the uh, group that came in 1838, and they're also DNA related to some of the ones who remain in Maryland. And that's the value of having so many of the descendants 
uh, having been DNA tested. Some were DNA tested on their own, and we've been in touch with them, and others have been DNA tested through the Georgetown Memory Project. And, um, uh, and, and people can tell if they're connected via DNA to a um, descendant, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a descendant. There's more research that would have to be done. But if you have already had DNA testing done through Ancestry.com, you would see in your results uh, certain initials and then followed by, administered by, the Georgetown Project. And several of those uh, Ancestry.com DNA kits have now been uploaded to GEDmatch.com. And uh, so that's one of the ways people can begin to get a hint to see if they're connected to this. One of the other ways is um, on the – well, we've created a Facebook page called Georgetown 272 Descendants, and there is a post pinned to the top of that page that includes a list of the names, the surnames that were involved in that 1838 sale so that's another beginning point. If you have one of these surnames and you descend from uh, one of those three parishes in Louisiana, Iberville Parish, Ascension, Terrebonne, and now I would even say St. Landry, but also if you even if you have roots back in Maryland and even in Missouri and you're connected to one of these surnames, uh, you know, I would encourage people to go out and get the DNA testing done and then see if you also connect to these uh, descendants and begin to make contact with them and compare family trees and do the research, the basic genealogy research that we all do even long before DNA testing, as, you know, as far as looking up the census records and birth, death, and marriage records, those basic things, do those things as well and connect all these dots. Now, I have a question. You mentioned Iberville, Terrebonne, Ascension, and St. Landry. What about Lafouche? So, several of the families, uh, in, in fact, some of our families, the Mahoney family, uh, family, the Queen family, many of those ended up in Lafouche Parish, and we have also been in touch with uh, descendants from Lafouche Parish. I know in my own family, some of the Mahoney relatives ended up on the Matthews Plantation in Lafouche Parish. Well, speaking of the plantations, you mentioned the Matthews Plantation, but can you give us the names of some of the other plantations? Initially, they didn't have names, but in Maringouin, um, one of the plantations became known as the West Oaks, or the West Oak Plantation, and uh-huh. then in the Parish, uh, I think it was the Chatham Plantation, and then down, I think down in um, Terrebonne, uh, even though it didn't have a name, it was known as, I think, the uh, Beatty Thibodeau Plantation. Okay, and then, okay, we're going back to some questions about the names. First of all, who's administering the kits on uh, Jed Match and Ancestry? Judy Riffle, uh, who's working with the Georgetown Memory Project, is administering uh, those kits. But then, of course, the individual, uh, just individual descendants, and there are many individual descendants who are who are administering their own kits and are making contact 
Um, I see the conversations on our uh, Facebook page, the Georgetown 272 Descendants Facebook page. Now, is this an open page, or do you have to be invited to this page? That page is an open page. It is an open page. Uh, okay, also, since you, you mentioned Hawkins as a, a surname and some of the others, could you just tell us the surnames so that for them to to go and do research? So can you just tell us the surnames? Sure. I have a list right here. Uh, Anderson okay, great. or Henderson, Barnes or Barney, Blacklock, Blair, Brown, Butler, Campbell, Conti, Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E-S, Kremble, Crutchmore, Kuchmore, Kuchmore, Kutchmore. There's all kinds of variations of Crutchmore or Kutchmore. Diggs, the various spellings of Diggs, Dorsey, Eaglin, Ford, Golf, and that's spelled G-O-U-G-H, but I've also seen it in family trees as G-O-F-F. Uh, Greenleaf in the, with the various spellings, including also Green, Hall, Harris, Hawkins, Hill, Jones, Johnson, Kelly, Churchman, Langley, Mahoney, Mason, Merrick uh, in, with the various spellings, Nolan in various spellings of that. It may be Nolanti also. Plowden, Queen, Raleigh, Scott, Sweeten or Sweden, Ware, West, Wilton, and Yorkshire. Those are just uh, some of the names. But now as we're connecting up with descendants, we're seeing, you know, some more uh, family names that may be connected. Bernice? Tell us about yeah. the GU72 Association. Like well, actually, it's the GU272 Descendant Association. Yes. Yes. It's a, a group of us. We've come together. Um, to support descendants and also in many ways, well, to help them connect with one another, to support their uh, efforts to try to trace their roots, to, to help them do genealogical research, and also to give uh, support to their economic and educational aspirations. We also have a foundation called the GU272 Foundation. Um, and with the uh, financial support through the foundation, we plan to fund the association and to do many good things to promote reconciliation, healing, education, and to really tell the not only the story of these individuals and their descendants, but also the story of slavery in this country. Now, there's a question. Is there a Maryland-based GU-272 of those that were left behind? No, we're all we're... working together. We have people in Maryland, here in Louisiana, all over the country. We have descendants that are in, in Asia, in Hawaii, everywhere. We're all working together. We're trying to work together. And you mentioned that at at one point all of you came, those of you in Louisiana did come together. 
uh, how did they know they were descendants for you all to bring those folks together? Well, well for the people in Maringwin, it's a very small sort of close-knit community, and everyone uh-huh. pretty much knows that they're related to one another. And so oh, that okay. was easy for them to do. And then as the story hit the news media, people from their own natural curiosity began to seek it out and seek information about, about themselves and their heritage. And also the Georgetown Memory Project has done terrific work in identifying descendants, in tracing those family trees of those people that were enslaved and sent down to Louisiana. So and tell us a little bit more about the Georgetown Memory Project. Who heads this up? Um, Karen? Well, Richard Cellini, Richard Cellini who's an uh, alumnus of Georgetown, uh, heads up the Georgetown Memory Project. Uh, he began to ask about, well, what happened to the people who were uh, enslaved? And, and he was told, oh, well, you know, after a few weeks, they all died in the uh, malodorous Swamp, was it, Sandra? And, yes, the malodorous um, swamps of Louisiana. They perished. They all perished. Okay. And he knew that could not be true. And so he went on to raise some money to try to find the descendants. And the last time uh, he told me that uh, they have been able to document over 3,000 descendants throughout the country so far. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we, we work very closely with Richard in, uh, in, in making sure that we are uh, kept updated about the uh, folks that they are finding. And uh, we, with the. And we assist them as best we can, too, because they do come to us for questions and help. Do you know this person? This person is related to you. Do you know this surname? Are you willing to contact this person? I've contacted more people that are related to me that I never knew than I can tell you, you know, to, you know, to try to inform them of what's going on and to try to bring them in, you know, to encourage them to bring them in to learn about their history, you know. So. And, one of and what is the general I'm... reaction of those individuals when you contact them and they realize that they're a part of this, this piece of history, especially the connection with the Catholic Church? Well, you know, the responses are as varied as the people themselves. There are other people who are, um, there are some people who are embrace it. Other people are very cautious and somewhat suspicious. Who is this strange woman telling me that, you know, she's my fifth cousin, you know? And mm-hmm. um, some people, there are some people who adamantly do want nothing to do with it. They, um, feel that and, and and a lot of it has to do with the catholicism they do not want to they see it as tarnishing the church in some way and i don't see how you can feel that you're tarnishing the church by telling the truth about something they did that was morally wrong you didn't do anything we didn't do anything so what they did are you was saying wrong. the descendants are feeling this way that they're tarnishing yeah there are the some church? descendants that feel that way yeah, that they don't want anything to do with it because they do not want to tarnish the church. There are some who feel that way, yes. Yeah. Well, And there are some also who feel that slavery was so long ago and they've created a narrative and a myth in their minds that they're, mm-hmm. they were only descended from free people of color, so they don't want to be cast with the stigma, 
stigma, what they see as a stigma, I don't see it as a stigma of descending from mm-hmm. someone who has been enslaved. I think the stigma is entirely uh, on the enslaver, not the one who was enslaved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's whole, that whole emotional uh, reaction just to your genealogy and then the reality that, yes, they were slaves, uh, some people have a hard time grasping that. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, there's a question here in the chat. Can you share the ways Georgetown has acknowledged and apologized for the enslavement of your ancestors? That's the first part of the question. And do you feel they are willing to take responsibility to set things right? Karen? <laughs> well, uh, well, of course. You want to take it? Uh, well, let me, let me, I always want to give the students their due. Uh, this all came about uh, because students sat in the president's office at Georgetown University and uh, demanded that the names of the priests who sold our ancestors come off of the buildings. Because Georgetown has had this history for many years. But I give the students the credit for pushing the envelope, which led to the creation of a um, working group at Georgetown that worked the rest of that uh, school year to put together some recommendations. And so it was on September 1st that Georgetown announced the, um, the, uh, the, the working group's recommendations and said that they um, will have a... Um, a mass or a ceremony um, of apology, and they announced several of the things that they want to do to make amends. And, uh, you know, I I don't speak for Georgetown, but um, those are the things that I know that they have done. And, Bernice, let me piggyback on that. I, I give all credit to the students because none of this would have happened. The Georgetown Memory Project is a result of Richard Cellini seeing those demonstrations on the news. That's what sparked his interest. That's what got him involved. That's what subsequently took the story to the New York Times. And then Wayne Baquet, who's the editor of the New York Times, he had, you know, the um, wisdom to see the value of this story and to not to bury it somewhere, but to put it on the front t- page where it belongs so it can gain national attention because this is an integral part of the founding of this nation and this nation's history, and it needs to be told, and it needs to be put in its proper place, not marginalized, not swept under the rug. This is what built this nation, and Georgetown University is a microcosm of the rest of the nation. Right, and we have a comment coming out of the chat room that in the 1990s, Agnes Callum studied the records stored at Healy Hall. So I'm glad that the students, though, didn't let it go by, that the students raised their voices and raised their voices loud. And 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 let me tell you, it's it's the right time. It's the right time because – at Georgetown, this history would be brought up every so often and discussed among academics at Georgetown and students, but it didn't get to the general public. But now with mm-hmm. the way that we communicate differently now with the Internet and everyone with a cell phone and the immediacy of information, that's what made this time right for this story. 
because it couldn't just be discussed in a seminar or a classroom and very few people know about it. You know, now it goes, goes worldwide, you know, and everybody knows about it, you know? Right, right. Well, one of the it's, – and it's wonderful that the story is being told over and over again. Are any of you writing a book about this story, any of the descendants? Well, we know that there's some books in the in the works, um, and I have been uh, encouraged along those lines myself. I have a very, very busy life and a lot of commitments, so I'm going to try to do something about my family, this in general, but also about my family in particular. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm what about aware. you, Karen? Uh, I've been told I need to write a book. Uh, and certainly document this journey that we are all on. Um, and I, I believe that, um, you know, through the telling of the story, in some ways uh, I will document. I'm not sure I'm going to write a book. Uh, I have some other ideas about how to keep this story uh, on the forefront because, as Sandra said, this is a, a part of American history. There is nothing else that compares to uh, this journey that we are on where so many descendants have been connected to the entity uh, that enslaved their ancestors and that they are now able to connect to their relatives all across the country. Uh, This is really an amazing story, and um, it it will be properly documented uh, by descendants and others, I'm sure by others. Yes. Now, there are two questions coming out of the chat. First of all, are those records, the records that are at Georgetown, are they researchable or available to the public? Yes. The Georgetown Slavery Archive website. That's all you have to do. And as they transcribe more documents, they put them on that website, you know, and and um, to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, I had my phone on mute. I was trying to chime in and didn't realize I had it on mute because I didn't, I didn't want the background noise. But as far as you were talking about slaves, that people were enslaved, not slaves. People were enslaved who ran off and hid and then came back to the plantation yes. afterwards. What were yes. they thinking? Well, th- these are my thoughts on that. Where else could they go? That's all that they knew. As they're doing these, transcribing these documents at Georgetown, they're discovering that these families that were connected to this sale, those families had been there at least 100 years prior to that sale. So to them, that was their home. They had been there for generations. In fact, mm-hmm. so far they've traced one branch all the way back to 1680. Now imagine that. And also imagine the reputation of being of Louisiana, the cane fields, and the expression being sold south, being sold down the river. That's where where that comes from, being sold south. So what else Mm -hmm. did they know? I think that was very courageous of them to go and hide in the woods, and it was courageous of them to come back. But they were coming back to the only thing that they knew, you know? If your family had been there 100 years, where else would you go? What else did you know? And I think that's why they came back. Right. Well, we have a, a caller online. You're uh, live, 504-376. You're live. Uh, good evening, everyone. I just want to say after 
Bible study and prayer service every Wednesday, then everybody should turn in and tune in to Bernice Show on Thursdays. <laughs> so my, my that question, sounds like a good suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question: I have one for Bernice and one for the guest, and I and I, and I think before you put me on, the, the guest kind of answered it. One question was, how far deep of the genealogy of those enslaved in Maryland that the Jesuits uh, on how far deep did that trail go? That was the first question. And the next question We don't know. Is, They're not finished. Oh, yeah, you, you did mention a case study where one family go back at least to... 16. Yeah, but, but, but what I'm saying is that they're not finished. That's what they've come up with so far. They have well over okay. 100 boxes of documents that they need to transcribe. We don't know okay. where this is going to take us. It's still okay. very much at the beginning stage. Okay. And, and the question for you, Bernice, is I, when, I, when I was reading about this uh, story, it was clear that the sales were prearranged between the Jesuit priests and I think uh, two of the guys in Louisiana. Uh, h- how common do you think on the manifest that people were prearranged, their, their sale and purchase was prearranged uh, prior to having to be put into the, uh, the market in New Orleans? Well, you know, I can give you a... a what I think, yes, they are putting them on on the slave ship, and they do have someone at the when they arrive in Louisiana ready to purchase them. My own, I saw my own ancestor was on a slave ship manifest, and she was sent to New Orleans from Richmond, Virginia, and she was sold to somebody there, of which I've been trying to track. I know where she is in 1870, but I don't see what happened to her between. The, the time she arrived, and I've been going through notarial records and what have you. But I would suspect that they have people waiting on the other end to take that cargo and to move them and to take them where well, the people, where they can be used throughout Louisiana. Certainly those well, sugar cane Bernice, fields, one of them. Yes. That's what's so unique about this sale. That's why I it's being heralded as the largest and most well-documented sale of enslaved persons in the nation. It was a tremendously unusual sale for its number. Usually my understanding is that they would sell two to three individuals at a time or maybe small family groups, but not 272 people. That's what makes it so Incredible. Also, you have to remember that at this time, the Atlantic slave trade had been outlawed. So what you're doing is you're getting people now just internally from the East Coast coming down to the Deep South to work in these cane fields and cotton fields and other things. And couple that with the Georgetown stated objective that they were getting out of the slavery business, they were divesting themselves, which turned out not to be true. They continued to purchase slaves and own slaves until well into the 1860s. In fact, they petitioned uh, the government for compensation for emancipating their slaves. So anyway, that's another story. But Right, and that's you're right the about, the, about the Atlantic this. slave trade was over, and we were into the domestic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, mm-hmm. they di- they didn't get out of the slave uh, the the sale mm-hmm. of slaves. So where is the next in your journey, both of you? Well, um, I am the executive director of the GU two seventy two Descendants Association. 
So uh, part of my job will be helping to find more descendants and and get them um, into the association so that we can also continue to help them um, with their expanded uh, search and connect them up with their uh, family members. Um, and, and so we're looking forward to that. Uh, we even coming up in January, on January 28th at the New Orleans Public Library, we have a GU-272 uh, genealogy gathering. So people who are who think they may be a descendant and they have some evidence, uh, it would be good to, for them to bring their trees so that they could link up with other descendants and compare trees to see if they indeed are um, are descendants and also be able to do the research right there at the library um, in New Orleans because uh, they have a really good collection up on the third floor to help people with that research. Right, and there's and, a question coming out, and it's about your thoughts on reparations, both of you. Oh Well, my thoughts are that we are due reparations. Those are my thoughts. That is not in, in, in a, the most basic, simple, straight-up and plain way. We are due reparations. That is not the objective of the GU-272 Descendant Association because I really do not see um, education as a form of reparation or reparative. Education is an opportunity. We want to help people and give them opportunities to succeed economically, educationally, and to connect with their families. But my personal opinion about reparations is, yes, yeah, yes, we are due reparations. And, and, and Karen? And my, my thought, yeah, my thoughts on reparations is, is kind of twofold. Uh, slavery did a lot of harm to this country uh, as a whole. And so while we may be looking at reparations for individual families, uh, you know, some people look at it that way. I also look at reparations as a way of how do we heal the harm that has been caused by slavery, uh, the racial tensions in this country, the legacy uh, that so many of our families continue to live with from uh, ancestors being enslaved, and, and to repair that is uh, also another way of looking at reparations. Okay. So, we're going to be closing out of the show, and do you all have any parting words? And before you say anything, I want you to go back and say the date that meeting will be held at the New Orleans Public Library for descendants. What is the date again? Yeah. Yes, it's Saturday, January 28th. Um, it's going to be from 12 until 3. Um, folks, we'll, uh, we'll have that posted soon on our website, and our website is gu272.net. Um, that's January 28th. That's on a Saturday. Okay, and if you have people in Maryland or other states that need to contact you, what would you recommend? How would they contact you? Um, if they're Again, if they're on Facebook, uh, that's one of the uh, best ways to contact us. And we we now have a phone number, um, and that's uh, 225-308-2050. Again, that's 225-308-2050. They leave a message on that line. I will get back in touch with them. 
And so they have, uh, you know, through our website as well, and that's um, gu272.net. So the Facebook page, Georgetown uh, 272 Descendants, uh, our website, gu272.net, and our phone number, 225-308-2050. Well, I want to thank both of you. Karen Harper Royal and Sandra Green Thomas for coming on and just sharing with us as descendants your whole reaction to what has happened and how you are continuing to try to get other descendants to come forth and to to just find out their history. And I have a qu- uh, just a response. Thanks for another great show. Wishing GU272 success and justice. This is coming from uh, Mark Rudinay. So thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing your story with us. I want to also just remind everybody that your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should Follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and also watch the Black, Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, Karen Harper Royal and Sandra Green Thomas. Good night, Good everyone. Night. Good night. Thank you for having us. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.